This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hello, welcome to Amplify, the Australian Museum's weekly podcast where we get to chat to some of our fantastic scientific researchers, collections managers and curators right across the Australian Museum. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO, and today I'm thrilled to have Phil Gordon as my guest. Welcome, Phil. Afternoon, Kim. Now, Phil is an Aboriginal Heritage Project Officer working in our Anthropology Research Department of the Australian Museum, but it really means that Phil oversees our Indigenous collections, and we have one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation. But Phil, you've been working at the Australian Museum for quite a long time. Yes, I started about 30-odd years ago, straight out of school. Straight out of school, that's amazing. What made you think about the Australian Museum? Well, in those days, there weren't too many Aboriginal people doing HSC. There was only about 20 of us, I think. And uh, we would, we had a, a week in town to, to talk about careers and all that sort of thing. And somebody mentioned the museum and I put my hand up because I was always interested in history and those sorts of things. And the rest, they say, is history. Isn't that fantastic? It's funny how those sliding doors happen in your life. You go through mm. one at a particular time. And people forget that when you're a kid at school... Uh, that careers advice you get can send you off in a direction that you didn't anticipate. Oh, definitely. I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking of museum style of uh, career. I was probably going to go in the army. And going in the army would be a sort of logical thing maybe for you because your dad was actually in the military, wasn't he? Yeah, dad was in the Navy. He spent uh, nine years as a stoker in the Royal Australian Navy. That's amazing. And that made... You travel a lot as a child, yeah? Oh, yes. We, we tr- certainly uh, travelled through Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra. And, of course, we had two years in Singapore during confrontation. That what was? Do you remember any of that? Oh, I remember it was just after the riots. Uh, I can remember machine gun nests at the bottom of the street and Royal Marines with uh, big bayonets on the end of their rifles. That's extraordinary. I mean, there aren't too many people who can say that they were there and had that experience. Did What, what impact did that have on you? Oh, it's hard to say, but um, certainly it's uh, an awareness of Southeast Asia and uh, the cultures and, and the British Empire. I mean, and, and that's certainly a history, Australia's history in Southeast Asia is not known by a lot of people. I mean, we were there well over 10 years fighting. There was the, the Malay uh, emergency to begin with and then mm. confrontasi with uh, against Indonesia. And then, of course, we were into Vietnam straight after that. And Dad uh, almost went to Vietnam but decided to get out. Right, now you were all from Rockhampton originally, is that right? Yes, we certainly, that's where we originally grew up, but our, my, uh, the uh, cultural uh, area that we really come from is Gurang Gurang, which is uh, down near Bundaberg, that's the Aboriginal area that we uh, come from. And is that where your dad is from and his family? Yeah, his family and extended family all, all the way down through there. So one of the extraordinary things, and I've been through our Indigenous collection with you on a number of occasions... And you always start by showing people that great map of Australia that shows over 300 language groups, which really helps define properly our Indigenous peoples and that they were in these family groups or, or communities and did have very different languages. Oh, certainly. And it, it reflects the different cultural differences that w- went right across Australia because the distance between Sydney and Perth is the distance between Moscow and London and people accept cultural variation in that area. 
um, and Aboriginal, you know, Australia's Aboriginal, and uh, you even Sydney has uh, has a, a grand Aboriginal history, and, and to try to get those things through and into the broader population is sometimes not as easy as it sounds. Now, of course, the Australian Museum's Indigenous collection covers a number of areas. Can you tell us about what are the major elements of that collection? Certainly our ethnographic collection, which is, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, material that was collected after contact with Europeans. Uh, There's about 20,000 objects, mostly from the northern parts of Australia. Then there's our archaeological collection, which is well over a million objects, and that's basically New South Wales. A lot of stone tools. Yes, stone tools and, and archaeological material. Uh, and then we've got our, our special collections, uh, our sacred and secret collections, which deal with uh, usually men's ceremonial material, our ancestral remains collections, and our carved tree collections, which are all very sensitive in, in very different ways. So first of all, let's talk about the repatriation of those objects, the human remains that museums right across the world hold, because, of course, back in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, through the mid-1800s, people regarded Indigenous peoples as sort of a novelty and collected their, their skeletons, didn't they? Oh, it was a huge international trade. It just wasn't Aboriginal uh, ancestral remains. It was North American Indians. It was uh, Māori, uh, the Ainu in, in Japan, um, you know, certainly uh, South African uh, various populations uh, were, were traded and sold and, and uh, you know, were deposited in mu- museums and universities around the world. Now, in the time you've been at the Australian Museum, over 30 years, you've actually led our repatriation efforts, haven't you? I've, well, certainly in the initial stages, I was assisting uh, people, and uh, the Australian Museum has a very proud history of returning ancestral remains and ethnographic objects to, to, uh, to Aboriginal people and Pacific Islanders. Uh, it was people like Dr Jim Specht and Ron, Dr Ron Lampert uh, were here and certainly pushed the idea against you know quite considerable opposition by uh, academics in, uh, in around Australia that ancestral remains should be returned, mm-hmm. um, and doc, people like Jim Speck, Dr. Jim Speck, uh, the return of objects to the South Pacific Islanders, you know, in the in the, the late seventies and early eighties uh, as part of the decolonisation process that was going on at the period. Um, you know, he re- they really pushed the boundaries, and it certainly made my work later on easier. They they fought the battles and uh, you know confronted the issues. So it's made it uh, a much more accessible process now of you working with other Indigenous communities, as you said, both here in Australia and internationally, on those repatriations. I know you went to America recently on a repatriation yeah. project in Washington, D.C. Can you... oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the, the debates overseas are unfolding. They sound very similar to those that were here 30 years ago. But certainly the... In Europe and parts of North America, there is a, a, a feeling that these ancestors should be returned. Uh, I went to D.C. to and accompanied a couple of traditional owners from the Kempsey region, and a, a skull was handed back to them. Uh, she was a, a famous uh, dentist, I think, from memory, uh, Australian, who was given those that skull in the 30s or 40s, and I think it was the 40s. And as you did in those days, you just took it and didn't think about it. Yeah. Um, and later in life, as issues were raised, as the conversation with Indigenous people around the world was undertaken, and she heard these voices and understood the voices, and one of her last requests was that the ancestor be returned and reburied. And and I think it's it's an education process. I think that, that it's uh, an understanding that uh, there are 
moral and cultural rights mm. that people have, and and certainly when it comes to return of ancestral remains, people can understand that. It's not like land rights or things like that where people can have difficulties. Uh, but you know, humans are naturally have a feeling towards the dead, their dead, and wanting them, you know, secured and and and, and buried properly. Exactly. To show respect to their family. So that, that's been a big part of your work, I know, in terms of repatriation. But also, just explain to us a bit about the secret and sacred stores, because a lot of people wouldn't realise that in, in Australian museums, particularly with our Indigenous um, artefacts, that we actually have special storage facilities for those secret and sacred objects. As part of Aboriginal culture, there are there are materials and knowledge and ceremonies that are, are controlled by both men and women uh, that uh, other part other people can't participate in. This is what we know as secret women's business or secret men's business. Exactly. And uh, as part of that, objects are produced. Sometimes those objects were destroyed straight away, um, but other objects uh, were not and they were continually used. And... Uh, and as part of the, the colonisation process, a lot of these objects were taken away or given for safekeeping to um, missionaries and those sorts of things. And these objects still have power, uh, both of a cultural uh, and a and a political too, because certainly certain objects from Central Australia are, are the deeds to the, to the land and people can use them in native title and those sorts of things. But these objects still have power and, and as, a, as a, a way of um, acknowledging that power and the sensitivity, we actually have separate storage areas for these sorts of objects. And we are, have been involved over 30 odd years in, in trying to return some of those objects to community. And it, it can be a very difficult and complex uh, uh, process, but we're fortunately going to be in, in conjunction with the Strello Centre looking at some material from Central Australia and getting traditional owners in here again um, over the next 12 months. Uh, to hopefully speed up some returns of objects back into the uh, into the Central Australian region. Well, that's fantastic. And, of course, we've got a, a, a very progressive digital repatriation project here at the museum as well where elements of the collection are able to be digitised and then uh, remote communities can access them and study the materials. And a lot of uh, young modern artists use them as inspiration, don't they? Oh, it's 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 a really exciting area of of, uh, of the collection these days. And you know, as resources are becoming scarcer, our ability to service Aboriginal cultural objectives are you know are diminished slightly. And the digital realm allows us to to uh, supply material and information to communities that you know, in some respects, may help them achieve seventy percent of their cultural objectives. You know, maybe the objects back. Would, have been, would be better, but in not all all cases. And we've been part. We've been fortunate to partner partner with uh, various Aboriginal organisations in Yurikala and uh, the Pichinjara country, uh, through the Strello Centre and um, numerous other places to get the material back into the communities. And I think over the next four or five years, as the style of technology develops, we'll be able to do a lot more in that area. Yeah, it really is exciting, I think, that um, especially for young Indigenous people to reconnect with their culture by able to at least visit it online. And then, of course, if they come to Sydney to see it here. And we, of course, tour uh, exhibitions as well of, of a lot of our um, different collections across the museum. So certainly within New South Wales. But a tragedy did happen in our collection, didn't it? Oh, it certainly did when the fire. Yeah. So we're talking about... The Garden Palace fire 
in the Royal Botanic Gardens. And as most people are aware, Botanic Gardens is marking its 200th mm -hmm. anniversary this year. Uh, it's just a little bit older than the Australian Museum because next year we turn 190. But 200 years ago, uh, there was an extraordinary structure in the garden in the um, Botanic Gardens called Garden Palace. A massive structure, but it burned to the ground. And it was an exhibition centre that had a large slice of the Australian Museum's Indigenous collection in it, didn't it? certainly did. And, and it had all of our early material um, that we couldn't replace. I mean, you can imagine Sydney in those first 40 or 50 years, the people that were collecting material were taking it back with them when they finished their, mm. their time in the colonies. Hence why the British Museum has such a big collection. Exactly, and Dublin and, and St Petersburg and La Perouse's village. Um, so all of that early material from Sydney and the, and the, and the uh, areas around it would have went up in smoke. And so that's unfortunately why our, the predominantly, part, predominantly our, our collections, are, our strengths are um, the northern parts of Australia. And of course we also have quite a significant collection from Arnhem Land as well, from various expeditions. Well, yeah, and there's the famous 48 expedition, which yeah. just has some real gems in it. I mean, you've seen the, the, um, the string figures, the, the string uh, toys and games. They're just wonderful pieces of I know you particularly like those uh, because people forget about children's toys and mm. play when they're looking at indigenous cultures and of course play is such an important part of every child's life so the fact that we have those string figure collections is extraordinary oh they are they just they are just a special part of the collection and this was a 1948 expedition undertaken by the Australian Museum in conjunction with the Smithsonian Institute and National Geographic exactly. and so it's very well documented in fact we'd We'd love to look at that again at some point, wouldn't we, in terms of our anniversary? Oh, it, it's a perfect opportunity. I mean, it was just one, one of a kind for us, and the material that we, we got out of that collection is just wonderful. Now, just popping back for a second to the, the Garden Palace at the Botanic Gardens and that massive fire, and they still don't know what caused the fire, by the way. There are many different uh, theories. Was it arson or not? And But, of course... Um, lighting had just been introduced. I think it was in the early 1880s. And uh, so it could have been a number of things. Most of the, the fabric of the building, except for the pillars, was timber. And so it really went up in smoke. Apparently you could view the fire from all over Sydney. Mm. It was so vast. So the philanthropist John Caldor has commissioned the young Indigenous artist Jonathan Jones to create a an artwork uh, which outlines the footprint of that garden palace uh, construction and is having a series of seminars that have taken place at the State Library, one coming up soon at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and then the Australian Museum is hosting the third one uh, soon, which is a really wonderful way of, I think, marking uh, the impact on Indigenous culture that that fire, that occasion, but also the growth of the city has actually had. And it's a it's a untold story, and it's a fascinating story, and it's it's a story of empire, and um, you know, uh, copying what happened in in London, and you know, Melbourne then had their equivalent, and you know, it's, yes, it's, which is st still exists today, of course, located building, next yeah. to the Melbourne Museum. Yes, but, fascinating, beautiful building. Yeah, so people should certainly look up the Garden Palace online and and understand what an, what an extraordinary building it was. But of course, that Sydney and New South Wales. Indigenous collection, a lot of it was lost at that time. But Jonathan Jones has actually created an installation for us as well in our new Bailanura gallery, which means yarning country, 
we all like a yarn in Australia, I think, so it's, it's great. So Jonathan has created this extraordinary shield installation showing all the different shapes and designs on shields that we hold. I mean, how many shields do we have? Thousands, yeah? Oh, at least 2,000, um, if not more from all over Australia. But it, it, is, a, it is just a lovely, sim- simple way of showing the diversity of Aboriginal culture. The look at the diversity of shields, the, uh, the art on the shields uh, and the shapes of the shields. It just, it just, it, it just bring, you know, brings it together quite nicely. Well, of course, at the Australian Museum at the moment, we have two relatively new Indigenous galleries, one called Garigarang Sea Country and the other being Bialanura Yarning Country. So they're well worth visiting. They really give you a very interesting and deep perspective mm. On indigenous culture and Phil Gordon, thank you so much for the work you do here. You are you're more than part of the furniture, mate. I think uh, your knowledge and the networks that you have and the connections you have have brought a lot to this institution. So thanks so much, and we'll come and talk to you again. I hope. Thanks, Kim. Yes. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.